Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Now, first up, we take a look at the business stories that are making this morning's newspapers and indeed the business stories of the week. I'm delighted to be joined this morning by Susan Hayes Culleton, also known as the Positive Economist, and she's the Managing Director of the Hayes Culleton Group. I'm also delighted to be joined by Stephen O'Leary, the founder of Olitico and also the chair of the Dublin Chamber of Commerce. You're both very welcome to the programme. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks, Bobby. Now, we might start with you, Stephen, if you would. Um, RTE is back in the news again. This is the story that keeps on giving. We thought it had maybe gone away, but it's front page in the Irish Independent and indeed the Irish Daily Mail. Uh, in the Irish Independent, Finan Sheehan is asking what RTE really knew before it shamed and blamed Ryan Tuberty. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the reason we thought this had gone away was because the reports had been published and we had the information. But this is a testament really to the Freedom of Information Act and the requests submitted, not just by the Irish Independent, but by others. And as you say, Fiona Sheehan's writing on the front page of today's Irish Independent. And I think one of the most interesting lines in this article is that the internal report, um, a redacted version of which Sheehan and other journalists um, have gotten through an FOI request, was never actually made available um, to the Oireachtas committees, despite it being requested. And that's really what makes up the majority of what we're reading today. It's that additional information. And what it boils down to is who knew what, when. Um, so there are some, so there's some new information here. But ultimately, I think in terms of, of Ryan Tuberty, a lot of this information probably comes a little bit too late because what we're seeing here is uh, a story that really, I guess, in kind of the public eye has, has moved on. But it's this, uh, it's this fresh information through the Freedom of Information request that has probably changed things a little bit. Uh, Susan, you know, we, we all look for uh, accountability, responsibility, but all these, all these reports upon reports... Uh, people, you know, saying things, but really they cost a lot of money. Um, the the mail is reporting 2.3 million so far. You know, there's a cost to accountability, but rightly so, one might say. Well, I think, Bobby, you'd have to question the opportunity cost of this. I mean, when I think back of the times that I was sitting here in studio with you talking about this over the summer, a lot of people wanted answers and they wanted accountability. And, and there was so many people tuned into the Public Accounts Committee for that. So this isn't free. And when we see a figure like 2.3 million in Ashley Maloney's piece all right today, I think, though, it is worthwhile delving into what does it actually represent? Of course, it does indeed represent both of the Grant Thornton reports. Uh, one of those cost 106,000, for example, in, in the case of the first one. But then there's also another one which hasn't really got at all as much headlines, you could say, or airtime, and that is that a total of 256,000 uh, was paid to legal firm Evers uh, Evershed Sutherland for its review in 2018, which uncovered bogus self-employment arrangements for 157 staff. Now, what that went on to actually lead to was a 20 million euro estimated to be paid to correct the PRSI contributions of this to the state. Like, you know, obviously it, it's, it might be hard for some people to equate that as good value for money, but a quarter of a million spend has, le has led to 20 million um, payment to revenue. So I think we have to understand here that number one, these costs aren't free. There was a massive public hunger for this to happen. And of course, you're looking for highly qualified, expensive time and efforts to go into it. But the second thing here is what we can learn from this. And, you know, there's there's a piece here where it's, it talks about the, the costs involved 
and it says it's part of mopping up the mess of bad practice. But again, what's the opportunity cost of leaving it there? So fundamentally, I yeah. think that we we have to realise, yes, there's a, there's a lot of cost involved, but in some cases, that's what's needed. Stephen, it, it, it does seem that this story is going to roll and roll. Um, you know, we saw the new broom uh, that was... Uh, Kevin Backhurst returning to the to the business, but you know this story when 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 you're there waiting to be bailed out, and we've heard all sorts of costs about what the final cost might be. It puts the state broadcaster in a very precarious negotiating position. It does, yeah, and and there's no doubting that I suppose that the longer this story runs on, the more difficult those negotiations become. I mean, it is increasingly difficult when you're looking for support. And as you say, there's been kind of fairly significant numbers uh, floated in terms of how much that's actually going to be when governance is being questioned, that becomes harder. But really, we're hopefully coming to the other side of that now. Like Susan said, yes, it's a, a significant investment into reporting. But ultimately, if we end up with a better run RTE, that is better structured, that has better processes in place, and we can avoid this happening again in the future, then the idea would be that any future investment in RTE will lead to a better return and there will be less issues like this in future. So it, it is necessary for this to happen. I mean, obviously, ideally, and we're, we're kind of seeing this, this colossal amount uh, should not have been required in the first place, but that's slightly retrospective, right? I mean, the problem occurred, it needs to be fixed. And that's what this investment will hopefully lead to. But I would argue, Stephen, okay. that, it, that it's, it's not just a better RT. I would hope that there was better board governance across the country, generally speaking. There was an awful lot of boards, I'd say, that went back to the board and said, hang on a second here now, we need to look at our own processes. If we were up in front of the Public Accounts Committee, where would we stand? Fundamentally, that's the return on investment, in my opinion. Uh, well, I have you there, Susan. The, the horrific stuff that's happening uh, in Gaza... Uh, Israel pounding Gaza from the air, the sea, the ground in an unprecedented barrage, knocking out internet networks. This horrific tale continues. It's, you know, this this is a really difficult story to talk about in so many ways. And I think that in when, when we look at the piece that, that's put forward here and even just the language that's of it that you've just shared with us there, Bobby, like it's really, really hard to even imagine what it's like on the ground. But in particular, there's, there's three parts to this article that stood out for me by Mark Weiss in Jerusalem and Pat Leahy in Brussels. And that is, number one, is that now by knocking out the communication systems and internet networks across, um, across, the, across the area, is that you're not enabling people to reach out to the emergency services, of which, of course, are incredibly uh, resource constrained in so many ways as well. So by doing that, that the sense of connectivity between people in the region is now so much, so much more limited. The second thing, when we speak of connectivity in a different way, is the fact that the United Nations General Assembly on Friday, so they adopted a non-binding resolution drafted by Arab states and supported by Ireland calling for an immediate humanitarian truce in Gaza. Now, this passed with 120 votes in favour 45 abstained, 14 including Israel, you can understand why, um, but also the US then voted no. So what we're seeing here is a real big run uh, across the global community to try to do something. And in many ways, they're coming from behind here because there has been uh, a big change, I suppose, in the international community over the last, I suppose, you could probably say seven 10 years, uh, where certain countries have been isolating themselves from international dialogue. And now there, there's been steps trying to be uh, retraced here. And then the third thing, of course, and this is the most important thing of all, is fundamentally the people 
that are affected by this on a daily basis. And the humanitarian crisis in Gaza worsens by the day. The piece says the Hamas-run health ministry said more than 7,000 people have been killed in Israeli airstrikes, 40% of them children, since Hamas gunmen stormed into Israel on October the 7th, killing more than 1,400 people and most of them civilians. That's the key thing. Uh, Fundamentally, at at, at the end of all of this, and no matter who is doing what, there are an awful lot of people who have got no gripe with anybody else that are being truly and, and lifelong, if, if life at all, affected by this. It's absolutely horrific. Uh, Stephen, Declan Power uh, has an interesting piece about maybe the implications, uh, should this spread, uh, uh, Israel Hamas war mean for Irish soldiers in Lebanon? And as we know, we're part of a a peacekeeping UN force out there. We are indeed, yeah. And um, and Power's piece in The Independent today is well worth a read. A read and I guess it's, it's a reminder um, of the incredible work um, that Irish troops do through these uh, UN peacekeeping missions around the world, but also, I suppose, kind of the danger that they are, they are potentially in here. So Lebanon is at the moment on the cusp of being drawn into the war between Israel and Hamas. Um, and essentially, there, there's a huge amount, I guess, of kind of unknown at the moment. And, and Susan talked about the importance of communications and, and the fear, I suppose, that's emerged in Gaza in recent hours as a result of, of Internet and mobile phone access being um, taken down. And really, in terms of the, the role of the peacekeepers uh, in the Lebanon, an awful lot of that is to do with observation posts and communication centres. Uh, and it is playing that kind of key role in terms of, of communication and recording things like shots and shells fired and, and damage and things like that. So, look, I'm sure, again, people in Ireland who have got family um, who are in um, the UN uh, and, and in Lebanon at the moment are probably watching on uh, in, in terms of what's happening in Gaza with a huge amount of fear. Um, and obviously our thoughts are with everyone who's in the region at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Susan, I know you're an economist. We're in supposedly a technical recession, but sometimes that's hard to recognise. Sarah Collins has a nice piece. Sarah Collins does indeed have have a nice piece. I suppose I would challenge, though, the the headline and the article, they seem a little bit distant. uh, And that is because the headline says Ireland is on the brink of a technical recession. So I went looking for it, Bobby. (laughs) I went looking for it to see where it was. And so technically speaking, that a recession happens when you have two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Now, we've only had one quarter of negative growth. So saying we're on the brink of one means that we're like we're we're halfway to a technical recession if it's going to happen at all. So uh, just in case anybody's reading that this morning and getting very worried about it, hold your horses is what I'd say. And then the second thing, and this is any economist in Ireland today is now, of course, moving straight away into looking at modified domestic demand instead, because that's far more, more accurate, which indeed Sarah does herself. So. First of all, modified to domestic... And that's up 2.6%. Yes, so there, there you've got the real story. Uh, and so, it, <laughs> and as a result, I just want to explain what um, modified domestic demand means. So what this is, is consumer spending. So that's what you and me are spending here. Um, secondly, what government spends on goods and services. And then thirdly, modified investment. So that means investment that removes uh, research and development, traded intellectual property and leased aircraft. Right. But so fundamentally, modified domestic demand is what's actually happening in the real economy. And that, as you say, is indeed up 2.6, uh, 2.6%. So that is that is very encouraging. 
In addition as well, um, the Department of Finance is for, is forecasting that the domestic sectors of the economy, again, that's what you and me feel here on the ground, um, will grow, grow by 2.2% this year and is not expecting a, a technical recession. And like basically, okay. Sarah goes on, Bobby, very briefly then to point out that the retail sector is up, employment is up um, and also a range of other things are looking positive. So I would say we're not, you know, I, I wouldn't be worrying about this. There's a lot more goodness in this than maybe the headline suggests. Okay, Stephen, Ulster Bank, unclaimed Ulster Bank savings to move into a trust when the bank shuts. Uh, phase shutdown of the lender is now nearing the end of a end point of two years after it began an Irish exit, but over 200 million is still left unclaimed. It's a huge figure. It is, but like many of these stories, and, and Susan talked about it, this is all about context, right? So 200 million sounds like a huge number and obviously is in certain contexts, but there are a bunch of other numbers within this report and it's Donald O'Donovan writing in The Independent that really gave a bit of context to this and they're probably the important ones to, to focus on. So 99% of accounts have now been closed, right? So l- literally so much more than the vast majority have actually taken their money out of the bank. For context for the 200 million, there had been 21 billion on deposit in the bank. So 200 million is a fraction of that as a total piece. And there are other circumstances. So this, for the most part, isn't people who've just forgotten they have money. There's a range of other factors involved, including one, and I think this is kind of buried in the story, but feels very, very important. They still have a product. So while the vast majority of their current accounts and mortgages and other things have been passed on to other lenders and other financial institutions, there is a product which relates to offset mortgages, which they haven't sold yet to another provider. So in those circumstances, I would imagine customers can't actually withdraw their money from the bank until Ulster Bank finds someone to take on that specific product. So, yeah. so there's a range of different factors, I think, that make up the, the 200 million number. But I think context here is key. What, what's ironic as well, and it's pointed out in the article, is that the glut of savings that was a drag on profitability when the bank announced its plan to exit could now be a major boost. In other words, they may have left too early. I would, uh, that actually stood out to me as well, Bobby. I, I was struck by that is that, of course, it was a lot of profitability because that money was basically costing the money when you had negative interest rates since we've had now 10 consecutive interest rate increases in the uh, from the ECB, which of course stopped this week. Um, now, of course, it would be a major boost uh, to, to margins. And and I do think as well, like we also have to bear in mind for, for anybody listening today and saying, oh God, maybe I'm one of the 229.7 million euro. Bear in mind, you can get it back, but the longer this goes on, the harder, well then it will be to actually prove that you were uh, the owner in the first place. And also remember, okay. all unclaimed deposits in the state are moved to, to the NTMA if there has been no activity for 15 years. So make sure and move quickly. Uh, Stephen, um, Web Summit co-founders want Paddy Cosgrave to sell his shares. Uh, David Kelly, Dara Hickey uh, say they're concerned uh, over the risk to two, 300 jobs. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of strange. We're a fortnight out now, a little over from the event in Lisbon and Web Summit always comes up for conversation at this time of the year. But usually the narrative is extremely different. But obviously events of the last 
fortnight have changed that. Um, and as you say, Kira O'Brien is writing in the Irish Times today um, about David Kelly and Dara Hickey um, and the concerns they've put forward in relation to those um, who have got uh, jobs and employment within Web Summit. This is a story, really, I suppose, that is kind of multifaceted and obviously is the subject of legal action. So there's probably a limitation to kind of how detailed we can get in relation to it. Yeah. But ultimately, um, I think it's probably a reminder that the the actions of the the last couple of weeks and what we've seen play out, you know, this comes right back to, I suppose, kind of an earlier story around what's happened in the Middle East. Getting into conversation on social media, um, particularly on X, uh, formerly Twitter, about very complex situations is something that should be done with a huge amount of caution and care um, because it is a, it's not an environment where you can have, um, I guess, an open um, and, yeah. uh, and big kind of conversation about really complex topics. And I think what we're seeing here in this story is the fallout um, from some activity on X uh, and on Twitter. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, Susan, uh, Taylor Swift, I know you might be going to the concert in the Aviva next June. Uh, but she's now a billionaire. Well, as a fellow woman in business in my 30s, I can only commend the fact that indeed Taylor <laughs> Swift becoming a billionaire, like fair play to her, is, is all I have to say. Look, um, no, I, ha- I haven't actually that, that in the diary yet, Bobby, but thank you for prompting such activity. Um, what I, I think what stands out to me about Taylor Swift uh, is that she, her her... Her appeal to various different age groups around the world is is very striking. But in particular, she is one of, according to Bloomberg, um, she is one of a few entertainers to reach billionaire status solely because of her music and live performances. And I think that really stands out. It's not down to property. It's not down to business. It's not down to influencer or activity related to that, of which I'm sure she has plenty. But all the same, she has reached billionaire status by simply doing this. I mean, the concert series alone, estimating that uh, like her 53 US states have added 4.3 billion to the country's gross domestic pro- uh, product. It just shows how influential, like that's the US's GDP. We're talking about Irish one there a, a little while ago. But even to bring 320 million to the city, uh, sorry, to Los Angeles during the final six nights of Taylor Swift's um, concert in Los Angeles, I think is striking. And it, there's actually a parallel here to the last story, which is that um, 300 million is what the Web Summit is actually worth in Lisbon. Uh, and so here we can see the Taylor Swift, um, possibly a, a different scenario entirely to Paddy, Paddy Cosgrave, but certainly just we can see that the comparability there in terms of economic impact. So I would say fair play to her. And at all those profitability 50s, parallels, there you have it. Um, Stephen, uh, can we celebrate the achievement of one Pater Nugent reported in today's uh, Irish Mail, uh, his 43rd marathon and he's 80 years of age? Yeah, this is, um, I mean, this is the feel-good story, one of the feel-good stories of the day. And we need stories like this, right? I mean, um, like you said, um, Pater Nugent, 80 is going to have some porridge in the morning, uh, put on his uh, runners and his pale blue sweatband and do his 43rd consecutive marathon. It's incredible. And he aims to do it ultimately in less than six hours. Um, this is just a, it's a really, uh, I suppose it's an inspirational story in ways. Um, and there's some great photographs that accompany this in terms of 1987 um, and what he looked like back then. And I'm telling you, he doesn't look that different now. I thought fit, the same, actually. Fit, <laughs> fit and healthy man. Um, and, and I think it, it's a reminder too that marathons are obviously not about winning. They are very much about, you know, trying to conquer the 26.2 miles. And he talks himself about the fact he's not running this. You know, he'll, he'll jog down the hills when he can. Um, he'll walk up the, the hills on the way up. 
um, and if the flat is okay and he's feeling all right, he might kind of jog along then too. But this is all about trying to get to the end. Um, and he's not the only one who's competing uh, in his 43rd okay. marathon, but it's, yeah, a, a, an inspirational story. Well, speaking of the end, we'll have to leave it there. A huge thanks to my guests, Susan Hayes Cullerton, the positive economist, and indeed uh, Stephen O'Leary from Politico and the Dublin Chamber of Commerce. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the weekend and happy Halloween to you both. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.